Now, this morning's passage, Nehemiah 8, is all about the Word of God, and I feel so spoilt that I've got it. It's like having my hands in the candy shop, you know, because there's so much there. Um, and there's lots of threads, and I thought, where can I get a visual aid about threads? And I thought, ah, Lorraine. If anybody's got threads, it's Lorraine. So I said, I want a thread, a thing with threads. Lots of dingly dangly bits, yes? Here's your visual aid for the morning. Um, and this passage has lots of threads going through it, and often you can't see. It's like our lives. You can't see what's happening. But on the other side, there's this most amazing picture that's made with all the dingly dangly threads. So we've got... Um, We've got good numbers this morning. Three sections, all right, and three threads. The threads are feasts, postures of response, and threads of worship, all right? Feasts, postures, and worship. And before we read it, I just, we just need to know this is a turning point in Nehemiah, okay? We had up to seven, then we went back to five last week. But this is the place where we got to the place where Nehemiah's finished rebuilding the city. The walls are up, they've got houses, um, and it's in a good place. But what he realizes, what they lack is a spiritual community, right? It's fine having nice houses and shops to shop in and safe walls. But actually, the important thing is to have a spiritual rebuilding, a reawakening. Some, some commentaries call this... Uh, piece the uh, revival. It's so much about the Bible, I've called it the word and revival for us this morning. <clears throat> so he calls on his colleague Ezra, who we know is a contemporary of Nehemiah's, to help. So Nehemiah, man of prayer, but he's your up front, let's get things done guy, all right? Now he realizes that a different skill set is needed. So he calls on Ezra, who's your more deep thinker, who's going to take them through uh, something more. So Nehemiah takes a backstage and Ezra takes center stage. Now, if you read the old versions of this thing, it talks about him going in a pulpit. Now, don't think about a thing with twirly stairs. This pulpit held 14 people, all right? So it was quite large, a center sort of stage, literally broke, booked out into the people. And right at the beginning of the chapter we read, which we'll read in a minute, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Now today there's no PowerPoint you will have seen. That is not a sin of omission. It is quite deliberate. Because I want you to imagine yourselves among the people of God who were listening to the word. Now, that shouldn't be too hard because you are the people of God and we are looking at the word. Uh, but it does put a little bit more onus on you in terms of listening. This has to be active listening this morning. And it puts a bit more onus on me with the spirit to make it hopefully accessible um, and interesting. And at one point in the chapter, uh, all the people respond. So if you're listening to that bit, they all say, amen, amen. You can join in that bit, all right? just to engage with it. So I would like you to stand with me, please, as we read. And if you can't stand, do it mentally, all right? You've got a... As we read Nehemiah 8, let's pray. We pray with the psalmist. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see wonderful things in your law. Open our ears to hear you speaking to us. Open our hearts to obey your word. 
Nehemiah, beginning at verse 73 of chapter 7. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from facing the square before the water gate from early morning till midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the word book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they'd made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and he, as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Well, you nearly did it. <laughs> Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribes and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the Lord. And then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law of the Lord, command, the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of the Israel should dwell in tents during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make tents, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made tents for themselves, each on his roof and in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made tents and lived in tents, for from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day the people hadn't done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day, to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
I'd like you to know that they got, you got off lightly. They were standing up for four to five hours that day, all right? <laughs> so we're going to look at three sections. So the first section we're looking at is hearing the word of the Lord, right? hearing the word of the Lord. And that's verses one to eight. Now, as we listen this morning, remember they were listening as the people of God. I want us to listen as the people of God. So what is God, primarily, what is God saying to us this morning? And only secondarily, what is God saying to you as an individual? All right, he speaks to us as his people, not just as you and me and as, as individuals. And each section of these three sections begin with a date. And those dates are important. It's not just a diary entry, right? Why were the people gathered? And here's the first of our threads, all right? In October, when the people of Israel had settled in their towns, all the people were gathered. So the date is meaningful. They gathered not just because the walls of the city were finished, but because it was the first day of, here's our first feast, the Feast of Trumpets, right? That was a feast that marked the beginning of the Jewish civil year, okay? It's the seventh month, but it's the beginning of their civil year. So it was party time. It's New Year, right? Party time. And a trumpet blast was heard to call them together. And it was generally the start, interesting, of a time of repentance. So hang on to that one because we're going to come back to that, all right? Uh, remember, a trumpet blast was what summoned the people of Israel up to Mount Sinai. So this, when you remember, the trumpet sounded, you did what the trumpet said. You gathered. So they gather to celebrate, and what do they do? Well, the first thing is they ask Ezra to read the book of the law, which, of course, is the first five books, Pentateuch. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah didn't decide that the people should hear the word of the Lord. The people asked for it, right? They were eager. That's why I started off with that question. They were eager, it says, to hear the word. And they included everybody, men, women, and children who were old enough to understand, which is quite unusual. That's why we have an impact thing, so the kids can understand the word of God for themselves. So they gathered everybody together at their request. And then secondly, it says they were attentive to the word. They listened and paid attention. In verse 3, we read, they listened closely. Or the Hebrew text actually said they put their ear to it. It's like us saying, I'm all ears. You know, when somebody tells, I've got something to tell you. Oh, I'm all ears, can't wait to hear it. Are we all ears for the word? And they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted it explained to them. They were eager, they were attentive, but they wanted explained. We just don't want a formal reading for the sake of it. And they were explained, gathered in small groups. Always reminds me of explore groups when I read that, that we gather in small groups as well as in a large. So in verse 8, we read that the priest read from the book of the Lord of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. And unlike 2 Chronicles 34, when the word of God was, had been lost and discovered, remember when Hilkiah came out covered in dust and said, I found it, I found it, the scroll of the Lord. And pro Josiah says, ah, oh, why didn't I know this before? Rends his garments and it's pretty awful. These people hadn't lost the word of God. They'd lost contact with it. They'd lost contact with it. It's possible to have the word 
and not actually be connected to it. They needed to be reminded of what it said and why it was important and what its relevance was to them at that time. Isn't that why we have messages on a Sunday morning, hopefully? is to keep us in contact with the Word of God and find the relevance now. When did you last ask Aaron or Andy or one of your explore leaders, can, you, can, we, can we have a look at this passage because there's something in there that I'm not quite sure about or I'm really interested in this, can we have a go at that? And it was interactive. They were asking questions. I hope during this morning you're going to have questions. Questions aren't negative. Questions show we're thinking about something. Be, oh, I was interested in that. I wonder what that really means. So I hope you'll have questions. If it's really burning, interrupt me. You might not have time to deal with it, but you have permission. So there were th- we've got the f- thread of the feast, all right? Feast of trumpets, hearing the word of God. Second was the posture. We've already done that. They stood up to listen. They, it was a mark of respect and attention that they stood to their feet. It showed they were serious about it. And the third thread is worship. So the worship here, you notice they praised God. Ezra leads praises with his hand. Everybody lifts their hands up, they're praising. And notice that they did that before they heard the word of God. They praised God. He praised the God, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen. And praise was directed to the Lord. We do not worship the written word. We worship the living word of God. I'm afraid in some evangelical circles, it's almost that the Bible is worship. The living word points us to, the written word points us to the living word. And of course, all these people had, we were reading the first five books of the Bible. And we're fairly sure, because of some of the reactions, that they were in Deuteronomy and possibly Leviticus at this time. And remember, it says in Hebrews 1, as we think about this written word and the living word, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Yes, the Bible's important. Of course it is. It's God's message to us. It's inspired by the Spirit. But his supreme message is in the living word, made flesh, as John says. So we've had Hearing the word of God, that's our section. Trumpets, feast of trumpets, standing and praise. Our second section is responding to the word of God. So the people have heard the word of God, now they respond in verses 9 to 12. And we see two responses well, three really, if you count the bar- burning down at the beginning. They weep and they rejoice. You've got these kind of almost strangely conflicting responses. And we're going to look at them through the threads this time. Okay, so thread number one, the feast. Now, do you remember, I said at the beginning that the feast of trumpets uh, started a time of repentance. It was the opening of a time of repentance. Um, and that's because um, the Feast of Trumpets looks forward to the second feast of that month, busy month this October. Second feast was the Feast of Atonement, which comes 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. 
and we've already had reference to that, Andy, in your prayer, you paid reference to this. Atonement means to cover one's debt. It's having a debt covered. And we know that because of our sins, we are in debt to God. We can never pay the price. It's like running up a huge student loan and he magnify it by I don't know how many times. <laughs> and it'll still be there at the end to pay. Sorry, that's not very helpful, is it? <clears throat> and so we read at the end of verse 9 that all the people had been weeping as they read the words of the Lord. So it seems likely that they'd reached the points in the book of the law where the atonement was explained, right? Now, we get a long passage on the atonement in Leviticus 16. I'm going to mention several Bible passages. We won't have time to read them all. You haven't got your PowerPoint, so you can't cheat and look on that. But Leviticus 16, we read that at the Feast of the Atonement, two goats were brought to the high priest. And the first goat, the instruction is, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, sprinkling the blood over the mercy seat because of their sins. So you have the mercy seat as a measure of God's mercy that's there, and there's the grace that's poured out in the killing of the, the, the goat. And the goat, that sheep, that goat is the sacrifice for sins. That's the, that's the bit of the atonement. The other bit of the atonement is we then read, and he shall lay his hand on the gate, heads of the live goat, the second one that's there, and he shall confess the sins of the people and send it away into the wilderness. There's a second is what's called the scapegoat. We all know about a scapegoat. Don't Something happens and you want to find somebody to blame for it, so you find a scapegoat, don't you? Who's, who's the weakest person that we can put the blame on to be the scapegoat, right? Well, this goat is a scapegoat, and it's sent away into the wilderness from which it will never return. So it's two pictures of paying the price of sin and casting sin away will it be seen no more. Remember the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And of course, if we step out of our character of listening to Nehemiah uh, talk about uh, the atonement, we know how that was fulfilled. This was a picture for them. But we are in the immensely privileged place of knowing what the ending is that it points forward to the sacrifice of Christ who both pays the price for our sins and carries them away where they'll be seen no more. So thread number two, all right, thread number one, point two, <laughs> was the Feast of the Atonement. Number two is the posture. They bow down and worship with their faces to the ground I wanted to do that in that first song we had, I Fall at Your Feet. And I looked around and I saw everybody standing out and I didn't do it. I thought, stupid woman. <laughs> so they bow down and they are humbled as they hear this story of the atonement and they are convicted of sin. Conviction puts them in a place of submission. So the thread in this one is worship here is repentance. OK, 
Okay, we've had worship as praise. Worship is now repentance, the weeping. I remember when first the charismatic, I'm old enough to remember this, firstly the charismatic movement came to the UK. It's always been there as far as most of you are concerned. But we were looking for power to worship, to witness. That was how we came across it. And it came. And the prayer that came with it was, Lord, send a revival and begin in me. I well remember praying that. And inevitably, when a revival comes, the Lord puts on his people to repent. There is an acute awareness. When we are acutely awareness of sin, then we are open to revival by the Spirit. God brings his people to their knees. And we need to make space in our worship for repentance. We cannot worship in spirit and in truth if we have not repented. Yes, we know we're forgiven. Yes, that's true. But we, not just I, you, 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 we need to repent of those things that keep us from him as the people of God. Then we can enter into the rejoicing. But it has to start with a repentance a real and true repentance, and that's what happens here. So they respond to the Lord with weeping and rejoicing. So the feast is the atonement, the potter is bowing down, worship is repentance, and the rejoicing, where's that come in? Well, before we get to this, the third section we're going to look at, we've got this little nugget in verse 10, which lots of people... No, but few would attribute it to Nehemiah, I think. Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We can all probably quote that without needing a Bible in front of us, can't we? So what does that mean? Are you sitting asking yourself that question? It's the sort of phrase that trips off the tongue without us necessarily thinking. What does that mean? How's that work? And why does it come here? Why is it in this bit of Nehemiah? Well, in verse 9, they're told to stop being sad and rejoiced. Why? Well, because the Feast of Atonement is a feast of joy because sins are forgiven. Yes, there's this huge period of repentance and the need to repent. But the sins are forgiven. We are not called to wallow in our sins. We're not called to say, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I've done such terrible things. You know, God, God can't forgive me. Yeah, yeah, you are. That's true. That's true. But if, you're, if, God, Jesus has, if your sins have been forgiven, it's like the scapegoat. The sins are gone. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. I really want to say that strongly this morning because I meet... So many Christians who are still living in a kind of shame or guilt mode. You know, I did, you just can't imagine what I did when I, was, when I was younger or when this happened. Well, I might not be able to imagine it, not as you as I know you now. But that's not the point. The scapegoats taken them. They're gone. There is no condemnation. You do not live under condemnation. We live, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And you notice that they, it says in verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and drink, I love that bit, and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that declared to them. Right? These were not just words that had kind of come here and gone there. They understood them. So they were able to actually implement them in their lives. So the joy of being forgiven. But why is the joy of the Lord your strength in this context? Why does joy equal strength? Come and join some dots with me, all right? Why is joy strength? So the word for, for strength here in Hebrew is fortress, all right? Now, when we think of a fortress, it's something that's impregnable, isn't it? Unshakable. It's there. And of course, the psalmist, lots of the psalms are like that. Psalm 46 says, the Lord Almighty is among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. God is unshakable, unchangeable, infathomable. He's always there for us, always a place of safety. So God's unshakable strength and shelter means that we can also always be joyful no matter the circumstances because he does not change, all right? So the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have joy in him because he is unchangeable. That doesn't matter about the circumstances. Now, I was taken when we had that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I suppose men, most of you know the story of Horatio Bonar, was his surname? that he wrote that hymn, having lost his wife and four children at sea. And he goes back on the boat, and he finds the place where the ship went down, and he is able to go to his cabin and write a, psalm, a song that says, It is well with my soul. And we need, we need testimonies, not just when things have gone right and everything's absolutely honky-dory, knowing that God is faithful when everything isn't going right because he's there he's there for us not just when we have answered prayer but all the time he's there it is well with my soul because he is my fortress does that help that because it it took me a little while to kind of work out this joy of the Lord you're saying because it's the sort of thing I say to people and they think what do I mean by it okay God is always there for you. And of course, Paul says, rejoicing is a command. He, Philippians 4, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It's not something you choose. You, you can sort of say, oh, yeah, well, or I won't. Because it's not happiness, which is fleeting, depending on circumstances. How am I feeling today? You know, what's the weather like? Joy is something that is deep-seated and transcends uh, whatever is happening. It's a sense of well-being, security, and hope, which is derived from the unchangeable God, no matter what the world may look like or how difficult the circumstances. Yeah? Do you need some wriggle room? Because you've been listening. Are you all right? Okay? Because if they've been standing up, uh, they'd be moving around a bit. Right. So we've had, hopefully, yes, Hearing the word of God, feast of trumpets, standing up to honour him, worship his praise. We've had responding to the word of God, feast of atonement, bowing down in submission, worship his repentance. 
and we've had this nice little cameo on joy that's sort of thrown in as, as a bonus. And the third section, verses 13 to 18, is acting on the word of God. And I think the guiding words here are detail and discovery. So we read in verse 13, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, all those long names, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the word, over the law in great detail. Now these people are like a dog with a bone. They're not going to let this go. Okay, we've been reading it for five hours standing up a couple of days ago, right? We've had it explained, but we want it in detail. You know, we want the small print. What does it say? And they're not going to let go of it until they've got it right. Do you like that with the word of God? I'm, I want to get it right. <laughs> and here we come to the third feast, which I think in some ways most interesting. The Feast of Tabernacles, it's called often translated shelters, booths, or tents. And again, we have a date, all right? So we're still in October, and this feast is five days after the Feast of Atonement, all right? So we start off with trumpets, then ten days we went to Atonement, then five days we come to the Feast of Tents. And of course, the tabernacle is a tent. The, the tabernacle was just one big tent. And this is one feast they seem to have completely lost sight of. We read, they discovered, all right, detail leads to discovery, funnily enough, that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in tents during the festival to be that held that month. Oh, they thought, interesting. And actually, what's even more interesting was that it hadn't been celebrated since the days of Joshua. And you think, how can that be? How can it not have happened? That's my question there. Someone tell me why. I don't know. Anyway, but perhaps these people lost it because they're so busy building houses, all right? So they've lost sight of that. Um, and now they have to go out and leave those lovely new houses and make tents for themselves. Now, they're not here. I was going to talk about Adam and Sammy, but they're both out working, aren't they? Okay, who else has moved house recently? Well, Simon and Erica moved nearly a year ago now. So just imagine, you've got the new kitchen, the comfy sofa and the bed, and now you've got to go out and live on a palliasse in a pile of sticks. Um, and this wasn't a go-outside, easy, outdoors, easy pop-up tent. They had to go and cut down trees to make the tents. And they wrecked them on their roofs. And what was the purpose? Well, if we stand with the people of God, all right, the Feast of Tents was to remind us of the time when we travelled through the desert and the wilderness and we lived in tents. And it's a reminder to look back at the past and be thankful for what God has done and to remind us ourselves that this life is fleeting. There's a lovely passage about the um, thankfulness in Deuteronomy 8. If you want to make another note, I'm going to start with verse 2 and then move quickly to verse 12, where Moses says, Remember how the Lord led you through the wilderness for 40 years. Your shoes didn't wear out. You had enough to eat. La, 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 la. And he says, Remember, because when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine houses to live in, which they've done, and when your flocks and herds have become very large, 
and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, that is the time to be careful. Don't become proud and forget the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? When things are going really, really well, that's the time to be careful. Moses says, don't think it was you that did it. It was God that did it. It was the Lord that led you. It was his faithfulness that took you through the desert place. And we too need to be thankful for God's goodness in the past to remind ourselves of all the good things that he's done for us, particularly if it's a hard place, I think, at the moment. But we also need to be thankful for his presence with us now. He's with us now, whether we feel it or not. And to look forward and be thankful for our future home in eternity. It's quite interesting to me in this series how often that's come up. I remember Tom's preaching on chapter 2 and reminding us of the transient nature of this life. And last week, as Will and Tilly shared, uh, and Ben, about going, well, Ben and Tilly shared about going out on mission, but um, when Will preached, he also said, you know, life is short. You don't know how long you might have. This life is not everything. We mustn't become so attached to this life that we lose sight of long-term realities. I think in the West, people get what I call sticky feet. You know, we have, we're fortunate. We have nice. Most, I mean, I'm not saying everybody, right. There are some people who have very hard lives. For a lot of people in the West, though, life is actually not that hard. Not with, compared with the rest of the world, anyway. And people have nice houses, and you have shops you can go to, and that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with having a nice place to live in. But it's not where your security lies. We are pilgrims. There was an old Negro spiritual that you say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Yeah? We're pilgrims. And that is a real, was a reality to the persecuted church of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament letters were, reach, were written to people who were persecuted, for whom this life wasn't very nice. And they looked forward with reality to what they had. And it's true of a lot of the church in the world, as, as Bill reminded us last week, with the persecuted church. And I was reminded again of Abraham. If you look at Hebrews 11, at the end of this, quite a long passage about Abraham in Hebrews 11. And it says in verse 9, even when Abraham reached the land God had promised him, so he'd made it, right? He lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in a tent. He did this because he was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Are we, in reality, living by faith? Confidently looking forward? Or is our, is our vision just around what's, what's around us? Are we confidently looking forward? So, the Feast of Tents. And the posture was being a people on the move. You know, they stood up, they bowed down. Now they're on the move. They had been woken up 
Some called it a revival. They're told out to go out and let people see who they were. I remember Aaron saying in a message a couple of weeks ago, it's easier to move a, something that's already in motion. Came from my husband, I think, actually. But they're told to go out. Don't stay in your places. Go out. So the worship here is witness. Worship is witness. Worship is praise. Worship is repentance. Worship is witness. It says, go into your neighborhoods. Go into the countries around. Bear testimony to this God who brought you to this place. Okay, so they, they need to be out and bearing testimony to the whole world. And there were four areas in verse 16 where they were told to go and build tents. And that was their four areas of witness. Again, <coughs> I was going to say devils in the detail. The detail is important here, all right? <clears throat> we said about detail leads to discovery. So four places where they had to build their tents. The first place they had to build their tents was on their rooftops. Now, the only people who went on the roof were the family. So this was about where, bearing witness in your family life. The family camped out, and the parents told their children the story of the wilderness... And probably this generation, remembering that they'd all probably been even born in the exile, would have told the story of the exile, which again was not a happy experience, but they told it to their children. And I love putting on gifts when I give to new babies to the parents, that lovely word from Psalm 78. We will tell the next generation the glorious deeds of life, of, of the Lord. Chloe, Joshua. Jonah, Mika, and Isla, and I could go on with them. We will tell the next generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. So they shared the God's story with their families. The second place they built tents were in their courtyards. Now, the courtyard was where you entertained your guests, right? The guests come into the, that's your social life. So they were to bear witness in their social life amongst their neighbours. Now, remember, the Jews never lived just in their own community. There were always foreigners there. Chapter 13 of, of Nehemiah, you find out about a fish market that was founded by non-Jews. Uh, and remember, they're putting these tents up. You can hardly miss them, can you? If you've got a tent, not just a little cat, no, in the back garden and on the roof. Okay, so the neighbours knew what, going on, what was going on. So you can imagine, can't you? And they saying, what on earth's going on? You've got a perfectly good house there. Why are you living in a tent? What, 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 is, what is it with you people? <laughs> I remember somebody saying that about when Brian went to Bible college and we didn't have any money. Why would he do that? <laughs> but it was a great opportunity because they could give their testimonies that they were living in the temporary, but there was a bigger picture to life than the temporary that you could see. Testimony is really powerful. And as I said earlier, not just testimony of when everything's gone right, Benny and I have had this conversation, but testimony when everything in going all right is important. So in their, in, on their roofs, in the courtyards, and the third one was in the courts of the house of God, in the religious community. So not just Erica and Simon went up and made tents and... and um, Oh, dear, 
Ali and Ben, but everybody, you all went, we all did it as a group. This was us giving testimony and giving our testimonies to each other, which is what we do on a Sunday morning quite often, and, and certainly in our explore groups. But we give testimony to each other because that encourages, doesn't it? Whatever it is, it's giving testimony um, that's important. So testimony is powerful. So ruse, courtyards, courts of the house of God. And the fourth place was in the square by the water gate. Now, the water gate was where people sold their produce. So we're talking about the business area. All right. This is the place where they worked. And again, they couldn't have missed it because, you see, Simon's had to put a tent up and he's had to take a day off work to go and cut all the trees down to make his tent. All right. So everybody knew, even in the business world, that something what was going. People in the workshop knew something was at workplace. And uh, with Katie's permission, I'm going to share. <laughs> so Katie, as you all know, I think, is going out to w on YWAM on the ships in uh, October the 6th. Um, and she was just saying at our explore group recently that, of course, work know that she's taking three months off because, you know, and people are now asking her questions. Well, why are you doing that? Why would you be doing that? You know, and opportunities are open. But there's four spheres we need to be, work we need to be witnessing in. Family, social, within our religious community and within our work community. God opens opportunities. Their faith and their witness went everywhere. Remember what Acts 1 says. The spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in. And it starts in the place of the home and it goes out. And guess what? When they did what God commanded, verse 17, we read they were all filled with great joy or there was great rejoicing when they did what God said there was great joy isn't that strange who would have thought that that would happen but actually doing what God said is not onerous it brings great joy now I don't know where the word of God has landed with us with you this morning I'm aware there's been a lot to think about with no distractions <laughs> You've had to sit and listen. We've talked about hearing God's word. Are we hearing God's word? Are we responding to God's word? Are we acting on God's word? It's a challenge. We've had feasts, trumpets, atonement, and, and tents. We've had three postures, standing to be attentive, bowing to worship, moving out to bear witness. I meant to have said when we were talking about postures that actually posture in worship matters. Uh, you know, when we engage with God, we engage with our whole being. So we should be thinking about how, how we are responding with our bodies in worship. And in that, and worship has been praise, repentance and witness. And in the middle, we've had that lovely little nugget of joy. So I want us to be quiet for a moment and let God speak to us and to you. Maybe you might want to change your posture during this time. You might want to stand up and walk around or whatever. What has God said to us? What has God said to you? What do we, what do you want to say to him? Where are you? Where are we? on our journey with him are we a people on the move where is your joy 
Are you short on joy this morning? As we're quiet listening to God, if you feel that God has given something for us, then come and see Andy and he will discern that. But let's just, let's not be afraid of silence. God can speak in the silence. Let's let that happen. Lord God, we bring our praise to you. You are the unshakable God, our fortress and our strength. We repent of all the things that keep us from you, things done or left undone, things said or left unsaid. And we thank you for the sacrifice that pays the debt of our sins and sends them far away into the wilderness where they will never be seen or heard of again. And we rebuke the devil when he tries to condemn us. And we desire to be your witnesses to our families, our friends, each other, and those with whom we work.